I was reminded this week of why we observe this practice of Lent. Uh, when you take on a Lenten devotion or a Lenten fast of some kind, it can be easy to get lost in the, the idea of effort. Um, we are all exerting uh, to try to achieve. Uh, we exert effort, right? And many of us are achievers by nature. And so we exert effort to try to achieve what we set out to do. And that's okay to a certain extent. Uh, I think exerting effort and taking on some form of discipline can be a very good thing. But the, the point of Lenten spiritual disciplines is not to cross the finish line. We're not running a half marathon here. That's not, the, that's not exactly the point. One of my kids was uh, communicated to me that this, this child of mine is, is uh, fasting goldfish for Lent. Now, I need you to know that I, not the, the cracker, right? Not, <laughs> not actual goldfish. Uh, I need you to know that this person did this of their own volition, that I did not put them up to it as a pastor. Uh, but I was reminded that goldfish are kind of a perfect Lenten fast uh, because it's a great illustration of the fact that God is not trying to get us to not eat goldfish for 40 days, right? Like that's not high on his, uh, his agenda as ruler of the cosmos. The point of a Lenten fast is that when we feel the feeling of wanting goldfish, or whatever it is you, you are fasting, we allow that to remind us that we are to turn our attention to the loving presence of God, which is already right around us all the time. And remember that all of my desires for goldfish or for uh, my phone, right, whenever I'm picking it up to get that dopamine hit, are I, I, I turn my attention to God and I remind myself that the reason I have that desire is because all of my desires are meant to be met and fulfilled in God's loving presence and in knowing him. And so we feel the pinch of a fast and we turn our attention, our focus, our heart to God. That's what Lent's all about. So if you don't choose to observe Lent in that way, in any specific way this year, that's okay. It is. Uh, if you did and you've fallen short of what you've wanted to do already, which is me, just for the record, uh, that's okay too. You can start again tomorrow with the assurance that Lent is not about earning anything and it's not about crossing a finish line. As good as self-discipline is uh, and can be for us, if you give up goldfish or french fries or social media for Lent and at the end of 40 days you did not allow that fast to turn your attention to God, there was no point in doing it anyways, okay? And even... Uh, this is even more true of spiritual disciplines like prayer and fasting. This is what Maximus the Confessor, a, a doctor of the church, said. He said, many human activities, good in themselves, are not good because of the motive for which they are done. For example, fasting and vigils, prayers and solemnity, acts of charity and hospitality are by nature good. But when performed for the sake of self-esteem, they are not good. Right? So that was your little uh, Lent has just begun, keep going pastoral pep talk this morning. Now, uh, into our message for today. So, I have not always been a fan of church architecture or church buildings. This is not something that I've always liked. When I was younger, I believed that all churches, regardless of denomination, should spend as little money as possible on the space that they are worshiping in so that they could take all of that extra money and give it to the disenfranchised and the poor. I believed this wholeheartedly when I was a young man, and I was very critical of any building project I was ever around because I thought, what's the point of this, right? What are we doing with all of this money? I really disliked both evangelical megachurches with their million-dollar building projects, and I was like, what is the Catholic Church doing with the Vatican and all of this stuff? Like, liquidate Vatican City, and you can solve world hunger, as I used to say, right? You can just take care of it in one false swoop. Uh, 
I still feel there's a balance to strike there. <laughs> I haven't completely rid myself of that impulse. But I will never forget uh, the first time that this kind of youthful desire to just like give all of our money to the poor started to change a little bit. And it was when I was with a group of friends who had spent a month in Swaziland on a missions trip. And on our way home, we had a 20-hour layover in London. And our missions leader, who was a bit of a world traveler, decided that we were going to hop on a train and go from Heathrow into the center of London and go to Westminster Abbey. Has anybody been to Westminster? Yeah, a couple of you. It's a beautiful building. Uh, Westminster is one of the most well-known churches in the world, right? Especially in the Western world. It's right in the heart of London next to Big Ben and the Parliament and all of that. It's a church that is part museum, part graveyard. Uh, People are literally buried in the walls and the floors. You walk all over them when you go to Westminster. And part functioning church. And I loved it. I just loved it. I ate it up. It was this big, beautiful building that was an active witness to the Christian faith in the Western world, right? You walk through it and you just see all this amazing stuff. The scope of this building was massive. There were all kinds of uh, things to look at. I began to feel how, uh, how a building like that could be a service to the world when I went there. Because it was. It was, kind of, it, was, it, it was like a public building. It was kind of a service to the world. And like a great piece of art or a great piece of music... Uh, it was well thought out, and it was, it was meant to be a tool that would point people towards ultimate truths, towards God's love or his grandeur or his beauty. The architect, uh, it, him or herself, could be a kind of living, uh, could create a kind of living sermon out of a building like that. And it would point people to God. And I began to realize, like, okay, there's some value here, Right? And it was in Westminster that I first heard that uh, the that I first heard the space where people worship in in Westminster referred to as a nave. Has anybody ever heard of a nave before? You're way ahead of me. You're all smarter than me. Uh, I did not know what it meant when I first heard it. Uh, I was familiar with worshiping in sanctuaries or, or auditoriums, uh, and I did not know what a nave was. Uh, later, I learned that the term gets its name from some of the ideas that we heard expressed in our, in our readings for today. Uh, the passages of scripture that we heard read. Uh, Christian architects playing off some of the imagery of the passages we, we heard read today uh, for quite some time, playing off the story that no, of Noah in the Old Testament and Peter's interpretation of Noah's of the story of Noah, began to design space, the spaces where people worshipped like they were upside-down ships. Like if you're ever in one of these buildings that has a nave, you look up and what you realize is like, I'm in the bottom of a boat right now, right? Uh, the ceiling looks like the bottom of a big sailing vessel. And the reason they did that was that they were playing off the idea that God's people, this like worshipped and gathering church that were in this space, they're trying to communicate to us when we walk in a space like that, that they were like, the people who worship in a nave are like Noah and his family that God was saving through the tumultuous waters of the world. That's what they're trying to communicate. And that every week when the church gathers, they would be reminded of two things if, if they're worshiping in a nave and under that beautiful architecture. The first thing that they w- would be reminded of is they are not alone in this journey of following Jesus. God is not saving disparate individuals, is he? God is saving his bride, the church, and that our lives are bound up together with one another on this journey. 
Yes, your individual heart is in mind and body and soul are being saved, but you are in the boat with other people. And the second thing that is being communicated to a congregation that's worshiping in a space like that is that, uh, is that this journey of following Jesus and being saved through tumultuous waters is a gracious gift. It is God that is doing the saving here. Yes, Noah had to partner with God, right? He did. He had to build the ship. And on his journey through the waters, I'm sure he had to do other tasks, probably fairly menial tasks that you and I would not want to do, like feeding animals and <laughs> cleaning up after animals. This is, <laughs> yeah, gross, right? <laughs> this is all thing, these were all things that he had to do. Uh, but the journey is one that we receive by grace. It, it is not something we do in and of ourselves. God is, by his grace, actively bringing us to himself. We are participating, but he is doing the work. And I think what the, this language of baptism that Peter pulls out here is trying to communicate that idea. Now, scholars have been arguing over this passage in Peter forever. So I have neither the time nor the energy to wade into it, nor the intellect to wade into it this morning. Uh, but suffice it to say, uh, this passage has furnished the church's understanding of what baptism is down through history. Baptism functions not just as a confession of an, it, one individual's faith or witness, but as a sign that one belongs to a people who God has made a promise, to whom God has made a promise, that he will begin this good work and then he will bring it to completion. This is the idea. There's a covenant, right? The, in, the, in our Old Testament passage, what's God saying as he brings Moses through the tumultuous waters, right? Like, I'm making a promise. I did this thing, but I'm also making a promise and a covenant with you. So when we are baptized, it is an outward and visible sign of the inward and spiritual grace that God is putting us in the boat. All right? That's, that's your takeaway this morning. So uh, it is individual, right? You are being put in the boat, but it is also corporate. Uh, but I love the picture of being in this ship together because it acknowledges both that God is bringing us to himself and that he is working right now to redeem and restore us and all of his creation, right? He's doing it. The Holy Spirit is active in our midst and in our hearts and in our lives and in this body he calls the church. But, that, but it also acknowledges something else, right? This image of being on this ship passing through the waters, right? It acknowledges that life is really hard. It is tumultuous, right? That we get kicked around and that things are very often uncertain in our lives. We, uh, do you, if you remember the story of Noah, what is Noah always doing? He's like sending doves up, right? He's sending birds out to be like, when is this going to stop, basically, is the question he's asking. In our gospel text this morning, we get Jesus' baptism. If you remember, we covered Jesus' baptism a few weeks ago. This is the second time in the lectionary that we cover this exact same passage from Mark. But the emphasis in this reading is a little different because rather than being focused just on the, the epiphany of Christ and what, what the Father says to him when he says, this is my son uh, in whom I am well pleased, the emphasis in our reading today is Jesus being driven out into the desert, right? Into this desolate place where he is to be tempted by Satan. 
We're told that this, it is the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, it's himself who drives Jesus out into the desert for the purpose of being tempted. There's a lot to unpack there as well that I'm not going to get into this morning because I have not figured it out yet. Uh, but at the very least, at the very least, when we read passages like this that acknowledge like the tumultuous nature of life and the fact that we are all on this ship that's kind of like finding its way through the waters. And when we see the fact that Jesus receives this beautiful acknowledgement of his belovedness to the Father, and at that very moment is driven by the Spirit out into this time of testing, all of that together tells us that even though we, as God's people, are affirmed as his beloved, that, that belovedness and that promise and the fact that God is doing this thing with us by putting us in this boat does not deny the struggle of life or the suffering that we will encounter in life. It doesn't just like sweep it under the rug. Baptism does not mean you get a, a get-out-of-jail-free card of all of the difficulties and struggles of this life. Jesus could not avoid the desert, and we can't either but we have received a covenant promise that though we walk through or are carried through the tumultuous waters of this life and some, uh, we will walk through desert seasons when life feels desolate, when life feels dangerous even, the covenant promises of God still stand in that moment. And when we gather together in the bottom of the boat, if you want to use, if we want to keep driving that analogy home, when we come to church together, we remind ourselves that though the wind and the waves are howling in our lives, maybe for you at this very moment, we know that we are destined for fertile shores of the resurrection. We know that. And so take heart and take hope this morning. The God of the universe loves you and he loves me. And he speaks over us the same thing that he speaks over Jesus and Jesus' baptism, that you are his beloved. And that he, not you, is doing the work of saving and renewing and restoring. That's a great comfort, isn't it? Because it means that I don't have to muster up my own salvation through my own effort. It means that I don't have to, it means I don't have to generate the kind of uh, self-will, to dig myself out of every problem that I find myself in. You are a beloved son or daughter of God. No one can take you out of the boat. And God has promised that he will complete his work. We all encounter seasons, right? Seasons where we are deeply disillusioned with the state of the world Seasons where we have no idea which way is up. Seasons where we get ourselves in holes that we don't know how to get ourselves out of. Seasons where we're like barely holding on. This is what life is. Just is. But we take heart in the, in the understanding that we're not supposed to figure our way out of all of those situations. We're really not. God will be for us what we cannot be for ourselves. And he will bring us through those seasons and through those times. Most of you know this, right? You've already been in or through seasons of deep suffering. Seasons of deep questioning and disillusionment. 
when the goodness or the plan of God feels so obscured that you can't see how it is you're going to pass through those particular waters. And yet, and yet God is faithful and he will do it. He will do it in an ultimate and loving sense. But here's the thing. We have to let him. We have to participate with him in this project. Because you know as well as I do that, there, that he wa- he, there will be times where he wants to do that. And I'm like, no, thank you very much. I like this particular problem. <laughs> or I just am rebellious and I don't want to solve it in the way that God would like me to solve it, right? I remember one time I knew uh, that there was a problem a relational problem in my life. And what was asked of me was a kind of repentance to God, but primarily to that person's face. It was very simple, right? It wasn't that big of a deal even. And what I realized in that moment was like, I wasn't willing to do the thing that I needed to do in order to come through that tumultuous relational situation. I just didn't want to apologize, right? I thought I was right, which doesn't happen very often, but in this case did happen. And it's in those moments that we just come to the realization that while God has us in the boat, he is carrying us, he is sustaining us, he is doing that work, we have to allow him, in the words of Peter in that passage, to wash us and to clean us. We have to let him do it. We don't have to muster up the energy to do it ourselves, but we do have to submit, we do have to relent, we do have to lay our lives down in the language of the Gospels. And in so doing, we are able to pick up our lives and find them anew. And so my encouragement for you today, this very simple encouragement, is that while life is hard, there there is suffering all around. You might be in a season where you're not feeling that in any particular sense, and you might be in a season where you're feeling it in like the most acute and aware way you've ever felt it in your lives. Just know God loves you. He speaks a word of blessing over your life and that he will carry you through and there is an opportunity in the midst of this thing to participate with him in the work that he is doing, both globally for the church as a whole and for that narrow sliver of the kingdom that's called your life. He's working in all, in all of those registers all the time, working everything to, together for good for those who love him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And just as Jesus was driven out into the wilderness, we know that there are seasons and times when we too enter our wilderness wanderings. There are seasons where it feels like we're just on a ship and it's bumpy outside and we're a little seasick and we don't know where to go or what to do. Would you, Father, help us to submit our will to your loving care Would you help us to listen to the still small voice of the Holy Spirit that whispers to us? And would you help us to place in as simple a way as we know how our trust in a God who will bring to completion every good work that he has begun? Jesus, we are weak. We are assaulted and tempted on every side. But like the words of the colic for today say, Let each one of us find you in the midst of those situations mighty to save through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We pray all this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
and amen.